So today's lecture is called Creation, the Hands-On Approach. The second story of the creation is wildly different from the first. It is evident that the two stories were completely independent of one another for some time. Neither seems influenced by the other at all. This is a wholly new story, a wholly new perspective. God is called Yahweh in this story, whereas God was called Elohim in the other story, the first story that we discussed last week. Yahweh, which is a word which is untranslatable in my mind, could be your breath, <gasps> comes close to meaning I am and is singular. Elohim is plural for the word El, which means God, like El Shaddai, the God of the mountain. Thus, this Yahweh is singular, and the other God of the first creation story is plural, hence the beauty and majesty of the mystery of the Trinity was already reflected from the beginning of the Bible. One and yet many one and yet more than one. God has more than one name because just one name was insufficient to capture God. In this story, God acts much more like a person. Yahweh touches and breathes and molds and crafts the creation into being. The creation is made by touch and contact rather than through song or words as in the first story. The interaction of creation is one of physical love and physical creation, like a painter who picks up a brush or a pianist who touches the keys. God acts through hands and molding and shaping like a sculptor God forms and adjusts. And God will create one part of the creation and then, in a very human way, realize that more needs to be done and make more. This is not pre-planned or orchestrated, as in the great poem of the first story of creation. This is spontaneous constant evaluation and adjustment are needed as God forms the human and then decides to make animals to keep the human company. One gets the sense of a new parent trying to bring toys before a toddler, making things to see what would please the child. It is very moment to moment, this Yahweh creating. It is artistic and it is playful. There is a specific place on this planet where the story takes place, between the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. And the author is very specific about that. 
Was this where the human race began? Indeed, it is very possible. This is what is called the Fertile Crescent, and the land is warm. It is a desert-like climate, but as we hear, there are multiple water sources. This is a land where humanity could have come to survive, and compared to the desert climate that surrounds it, a place of great comfort and ease because of the living sources of water. No doubt, plants and fruits would have been much more abundant. This was an oasis of sorts in what would be modern-day Iraq. Another big difference in this story is that the Adam, the human, was created first from the Adamah, the earth. The land was created first, then the human, and here are the words that address the purpose of the creation of the human. On that day, the Lord God made heaven and earth, no shrub of the field being yet on the earth, and no plant of the field yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused rain to fall upon the earth. And there was no human to till the soil, and wetness would well from the earth to water all the surface of the soil. Then the Lord God fashioned the human, humus, from the soil, and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden to the east, and he placed there the human he had fashioned. And the Lord God caused to sprout from the soil every tree lovely to look at and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river runs out of Eden to water the garden and from there splits off into four streams. The name of the first is Pishon, the one that winds through the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is goodly. Bdellium is there and lapis lazuli. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the one that winds through all the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, the one that goes to the east of Ashur. And the fourth river is Euphrates, and the Lord God took the human and set him down in the Garden of Eden to till it and watch it. Notice the hands-on nature of this narrative. The soil is described, the planting of seeds, the exact rivers and where they lay. And the human was set in the garden to till it and watch it. In both creation stories, there is no notion of the eating of animals and meat. The man is to till the ground, and the ground and the trees produce plants and seeds and fruits which are to be consumed. Animals 
will then be created to support and sustain the human. But there is no indication that they were made to be eaten. The human tilling the ground so that it produces is reminiscent of Yahweh tilling the ground and forming it and shaping it into the human himself. The act of touching the earth is a creative act. It is a sacred act. It is how everything was started. I think a gardener would agree with me. God says, it is not good for the human to be alone. I shall make him a sustainer beside him. The word azir kenegdo was once translated as help meet in the King James Version, but that translation is too weak. This sustainer was made to not just assist the human, but to be alongside him, opposite him, as a counterpart to him. Ezer is more than just to help someone. It means to, it means to actively intervene on someone's behalf, and it is sometimes used in military contexts. I'm reminded of my faithful Labrador retriever. She not only helps me and keeps me company and keeps me active by demanding to be walked every day, but she would also attack someone who tried to hurt me. She would fight for me. If any of you have cats that you love, you understand this notion of sustainer. The cat comforts and sustains us in times of loneliness and despair. My good friend, who is an organist in Kansas, just lost his cat Oxford, was his name, after 18 years of loving this cat. David, my friend, is in great grief because this cat sustained him. He lives alone. This cat was his companion. This is a holy and life-giving relationship, the relationship between the human and the animals. God intends for animals to keep the human company, to protect and sustain him. Originally, God thinks that animals will be all the company that the human needs. And there are many humans today who indeed are happier with their pets than with another human being. The human speaks in order to give each creature a name, but we don't actually hear his voice, not until the woman is made. Yahweh gives the human power over the animals and the gift of naming them and caring for them, but there is absolutely no mention of eating them. No, it seems that the first human was indeed a vegetarian. Despite the creation of all these creatures and birds of the air, and despite the fact that the human would name or call each one of them, the concept of naming was a powerful concept, as it is today, for you forge identity when you name. But in spite of all this, Genesis reads, But for the human, no sustainer beside him was found.
In a wonderful way, the human is already exercising free will, and Yahweh is gently loving and observing the creature. Yahweh can see that Adam is not yet satisfied. Yahweh has not succeeded in forming a true sustainer. The job is not yet done. So Yahweh calls the human to sleep, and he took one of his ribs and closed over the flesh where it had been. And the Lord God built the rib he had taken from the human into a woman, and he brought her to the human. And the human said, This one at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman, for from man this one was taken. There has been a long-standing debate among feminist biblical scholars about the meaning of this word, rib. Could it be translated as side? Do we get a little bit more of the body? <laughs> Perhaps. It is a concrete, almost architectural term in the Hebrew. It was a portion of the man's rib cage, most likely. But curiously, it is not until the woman is extracted from the Adam that the words male and female are used, ish and isha. It is not until the separation that gender is referred to at all. And the first to speak about gender is not God, but the human. The human first speaks as poetry. Perhaps it was a song, a love song. Adam expresses himself for the first time with his own voice, and it's a love song, and it's beautiful. The poem is framed by the word za'ot, which means this one, and it is feminine. Each of the two lines begins with this feminine word, and it is also the last Hebrew word of the poem, framing the song into a tight beginning and end. So, they were once one flesh, and they long to be one flesh again. Hence, reproduction becomes part of the natural created order. And the chapter ends with this verse, And the two of them were naked, the human and his woman, and they were not ashamed. This theme of nakedness will become central to the story as we ponder the loss of innocence and the fall from harmony with God. But as of right now, the man and the woman live as babies, completely innocent, eating fruit, appreciating the garden and watching it. There is no shame, no need for covering the body, as it is warm and ideal in its climate. They live almost in a womb-like state. And many scholars have surmised if, in fact, the womb is the original Garden of Eden. But most of us were in the womb alone, so that concept doesn't really work. But certainly, this was a place where there is total innocence and no struggle. Needs are met. Love 
has been found. Yahweh and the human are happy. It is bliss. But for one wrinkle. The paradise that has been created, the womb-like place, is fragile. This state of innocence can be broken. It can be smashed. For the human and his mate to be free and happy, there must be boundaries to keep them safe. There are things that they are forbidden to experience, actions that would make the innocence crack and break. They are given one simple command from God, one thing that they cannot do. Like a child that is instructed not to touch a hot stove or not to walk into the street, there is only one simple command, one boundary in this paradise. They are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if they eat it, they will die. What does a child do if you tell it not to do something? The focus turns quickly to the forbidden item, right? Why is it forbidden? Why should the child stay away? Do not watch TV, the parent says. It is evil. Just the forbidden quality of the thing promotes a kind of fascination in the child and even obsession. Why is it so bad? Why am I not allowed to touch it or listen to it? Why? Eden was fragile from the beginning. It was incredibly beautiful, and I myself would love to pay the place a good long visit. But it was prone to break. Disobedience was always possible. God gave the humans free will and instructions. God chose to allow them to disobey. Why is this? Was it inevitable that we would one day leave Eden? Why did paradise have to have boundaries and need protection? Protection from what? It is a fascinating thing that the forbidden tree is a tree of knowledge. It was knowing that set us on a path to suffering. Our suffering is linked to our state of awareness. Animals do not suffer as we do. Sure, they feel physical pain, but they don't suffer the same kind of mental and spiritual twisting and turning that people do. Animals still live in Eden. People will often ask me if I can do a funeral for their pet, but there is no need. The pet was in harmony with God and with the earth. The pet did not possess sin, and there is no need for forgiveness or burial in the Christian sense. 
Animals are part of God, and they return to God. It is we humans that have fallen from God's grace. And will my pet be in heaven, people will ask. Of course! In essence, what this ancient story tells us is that the animals never left. Only the people left Eden. We were the ones who disobeyed. It was only us. But the biggest, most mind-bending question is this. Why in Eden was there a need for refraining from anything? Was it true harmony if there was even the possibility of disobedience? These are questions which we will have to ponder in light of what is to come next week. <laughs>